quarter century of that, last quarter. And in this century, I've been a policy advisor, strategist, and an author. But you know, when it comes to the climate crisis, I would dispute the word control. Because you see, this is part of the human arrogance to think that we can control nature. We cannot. Uh, so the real phrase we're looking for, I believe, is climate resilience. We know that catastrophic climate change is upon us. So adaptation, mitigation, and resilience, and all of that has to be backed by what we need as the energy transition. What form is the energy transition going to take? Yes, decarbonization, but you see, it has to come from a framework of all of the above. One cannot simply say that we'll go this path and ignore that path. So first three Ds are disarmament, dignity, and development. Okay. Well, and if I can jump in at then, excuse me, sure. you know, uh, Kapil, between the Cs and the Es, when my Ds are sandwiched, I That's spoke about the first three Ds, which are, you know, a disarmament, a dignity, and development. But the next three Ds tie what you're talking about computing, because the, those are the foundation for digitalization, yes. which is the yes. application of emerging technology, Correct. decentralization, which Correct. means that everything has to be at the local level, at yeah. the panchayat level, at the BDO level. It can be a national policy, but it has to be enacted in a decentralized way. And then all of that lays the foundation for decarbonization, which That's is right. what you bring up when you're talking about banishing crude oil. That's so right. between the three Cs that we must avoid, the six Ds are part of the solution, and your three Es are the outcome we all want to achieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. Fantastic. I, I, I never get tired of watching that video. You really tore the house down on that. Uh, everybody, I am so, uh, honestly, I'm very happy to introduce Satya Das, who is the senior fellow at the Digital Economist. Uh, Satya, take us back to this video. I mean, it, it was an hour-long discussion, and uh, you clearly uh, made a couple points that uh, won, the, won the house over, as they say. Well, you know, Sam, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, and it's just a delight to be with you on this podcast. What we're really talking about there was uh, the whole idea that humans can control nature, that we can stop climate change, that if we do this or that, tip. All the catastrophes we see around us every week now are somehow going to slow down. And the point I was making is they're not. They're absolutely not because we have to think of mitigation. We have to think of adaptation. We have to get used to the new normal, which is going to be really frightening weather events of the kind that we used to see every hundred years are going to happen every year or every other year now. And that's part of the work that we're involved in at the Digital Economist is really leading the way in innovative thinking about how to cope, not just with climate change, but how to actually achieve climate resilience. And climate resilience means rebuilding and reimagining our lives, our societies, our structures in a way that'll enable us to adapt as best we can to the follies that we have wrought in the past. The catastrophes you're seeing now are from the carbon that is cycling through the atmosphere from the industrial activity of the 1960s and the 1970s. The horrifying effects of what we're doing now 
or have done in the last 20 years are going to be evident in the latter half of the century, long after I'm gone from this earth and I apologize right now for the mess I'm leaving for future generations. So well, how yeah. do we manage this climate resilience and how do we lead the energy transition? That's what we're leading on the Digital Economist. Well, I'm sure everyone listening right now uh, has no doubt as to why I've invited you onto this show to, to speak. Um, before we hop into that, I, I think it's important because, you know, it was important for, for me uh, uh, to a lot of you guys listening in right now. Uh, over the last six months, I've had the, uh, the honor to uh, work alongside the Digital Economists and a lot of the initiatives and, and, and really tie the two worlds uh, together with the emerging uh, tech and blockchain world. Um, a large part of that um, had really to do with, you know, the individuals that were associated uh, with the Digital Economists. And so I, I think that it is important uh, and, and very relevant for us to have a conversation. Uh, let's go back with uh, a little bit of your history um, and some of the things you've been involved with. I, I know you wrote um, uh, a, a book and, uh, you know, I'm thinking before I even go back into your, your history, because I think this sets it up well, uh, I tend to do a lot of research before I bring people on the show. And I got a video that I want to uh, share with you uh, real quick. Um, it was a, uh, a video, it looked like you were at your house. It was going back in the day of, of COVID. But uh, I, I think that uh, it really sets a, a platform and foundation uh, for the audience to get an insight of the type of person you are. So uh, let's view this and uh, give us some background on this as well. I look at what's happening with the coronavirus. I see a lot of hope and love amid the chaos and the terror. And I think we have to stay focused on hope and what makes us human. During the Second World War, faced with utter calamity, which is the last time the world went through such a cataclysm, the poet W.H. Auden wrote in his poem, in his poem 1 September 1939, one line that sums up the experience we're going through right now. He said, we must love one another or die. And it really is that basic and that stark. The time for selfishness, the time for exclusion is gone. There's a sense of cohesion and community developing that we see manifested in many ways, great and small. And this is what encourages me. And as we build this community to which we all belong, the community of us, if you like, it will transcend borders, it'll transcend languages, it'll transcend cultures, and finally, I think this is the best chance we'll ever have to make humanity come to see the inherent worth of one another and to rebuild ourselves in a culture of love. I'm Satya Das. Thank you. That's the person I get to talk to every day. So, yeah, tell us a little background on, the, on this uh, video. Well, first of all, uh, I'm 35 pounds lighter, so that big lime green belly is gone. <laughs> <laughs> you look good. You look good. You look good. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, it was actually, uh, we were sitting around the house, and uh, my daughter was asking me, uh, do I sort of have a message about how we cope with COVID? And then she started filming, and uh, then somebody put it up on Facebook and however social media works and got about 53,000 views like wow. within a couple of weeks. So I said, okay, well, okay, maybe there's something there. So uh, no, but you know, it actually, you're right, Sam, it kind of does sum up the place that I come from because uh, 
what really encourages me about the work that you're doing and about my work at the Digital Economist is that when I look at Web3, Web3 is really a digital way of expressing this whole culture of belonging, this whole sense that we have to find common ground, find ways to live with each other, find human-centered outcomes for the planet, and that especially when it comes to things like climate resilience and adaptation mitigation, we can't leave anybody behind. We all cross the finish line together. We survive together as one humanity. And this whole idea of some get ahead and others are left behind is just not going to work anymore. It's not working for a lot of young people who are making their own way in the world right now. This whole culture of power and domination and fear and might that's manifested in wars that never seem to end all over the place. This is just really not who we were meant to be. And I think, Sam, that you and I sort of share that perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that, um, you know, it's, it, you know, all, all my life I've always kind of looked at, at, at business. Um, you know, it, it was never easy for me, I, I guess I should say, to look at it strictly from a financial standpoint. Um, that, that doesn't make me wake up every day. Um, for a long time, I've been trying to figure out how to merge, you know, business with, with, uh, with impact. And, uh, and I was really, really happy to, to meet Nauru last year um, and, uh, and, and then you shortly after um, because I, I just feel like your background, your leadership, your thought, uh, your thought leadership is uh, so important. Um, you wrote a book. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this book because I, I think that it's important. Um, it's called Us. Um, what was the motivation for uh, starting this book? Well, actually, uh, Us was my fourth book. And as I say, it takes you three books to get it right. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. But, but, but this is a tough one. It took me 10 years to write. And the reason it took me 10 years to write, Sam, is because I went through exactly what you've described as a struggle. Why are we here? What are we trying to achieve? We're not here just to suffer or to make money. We're actually here to make a difference we are here to make a difference for as many people as possible. So I was so completely disheartened by this whole culture of hatred that's going everywhere because I know that people are not born to hate. People are taught to hate. People are born to cooperate. We are hardwired for love. And it's only because we're taught otherwise that we overcome our natural empathy for each other our natural sense of being and belonging to one another and actually learned to discriminate and hate. So what I was trying to do in us was to offer a way forward for people to find that common ground. And to do that, I brought together the teaching of three people who influenced my life and my thinking a lot. One was American, Martin Luther King Jr. I, was, I lived briefly in the United States during the time of American apartheid, which is in the early to mid-60s is when I was here. The other was from my native India, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. And the third was a more contemporary figure, Nelson Rohilala Mandela. And what Mandela and Gandhi and King all taught is the path of unconditional love which is also the path that you find in a lot of the world's great faith traditions, 
but that people seem to conveniently forget when it comes to dominance. So really, I was summoning the thinking of Gandhi and Mandela and King to the challenges that face us today. And it really is answering, the book answers what Nelson Mandela defined very well. He said, the world as we know it is not working. We need a completely new political culture, one that's based on human rights. And he didn't mean it in human rights as a violation of codes where you chronicle how people are being cruel to each other. He meant it as a way of life. And the way I've come to define it in us, and also by extension with my work as the digital economist is like this. We are, we'll never get there maybe, but we are heading toward a world where people of all genders, all backgrounds and all origins can live together with dignity in community, enjoying freedom from fear, having freedom from want, in harmony with one another and with the natural world. That is the utopia I'm trying to evoke in us. And that is what is driving my work at the Digital Economist. And in, when we face the climate emergency, I really hope that people will consider this destination and join in their own way at their own pace and find their own paths. Now, you know, um, when we talk about the, the climate crisis, I, I find that there's two camps, those that believe it exists and those that do not. Um, you've clearly have been involved in, in this research for many years. I, I know that there's only so much you can fit into a podcast, but what would you tell to those that, you know, deny that there is a, a, a uh, uh, evidential change happening in our climate right now? Well, science doesn't deal in opinion. <laughs> science deals in hypotheses that are proven and in hypotheses that are unproven. The hypotheses that have been proven, the overwhelming variety of evidence, the overwhelming body of evidence is that human-made climate change is here. It doesn't matter if you believe the degree to which it's human-made, which is, I think, the debate you're talking about. All you really need is the evidence of your life and the evidence of your eyes. The simple evidence that there are catastrophic climate events everywhere in the world at an accelerated pace cannot be denied. You can continue to have arguments on how much humans are contributing to it, you can continue to fiddle while the earth burns. That's your prerogative. But if you want a chance to have the planet survive, think about following the science. This is what the young people are saying. This is what the young people said when they set up the school strikes for climate. Follow the science. Chemistry doesn't have an opinion. Physics doesn't have an opinion. They simply are. Absolutely. Now you've done a lot. You've you've done a lot um, over the years. You know, working with some of the the largest organizations in the world. Um, I was hoping that you know, for those listening, knew if you could maybe go over a couple of the highlights of of, of some of the projects that you've worked on on these on this topic. 
Well, it's actually been uh, sort of a privilege to be, uh, I was a journalist for 25 years in the 20th century. And that is really where I made a sort of a high impact difference. I was a foreign correspondent at a national column for a while. I, I was on an editorial board, wrote editorials, provided thought leadership that way. And that's what really got me started on this path. So going forward, uh, I was really fortunate to be able to cover some pretty seismic shifts in the world. First of all, was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire, uh, the whole emergence of the new kind of geopolitics that came out of that, uh, the rise of China and the world, the uh, real struggle between uh, what we used to consider the democracy and the market economy and capitalism go together and how that was challenged completely by the fact that China showed that you can have a government dictatorship tied to the most successful capitalist system in the world. So yeah. I've been reporting and writing and covering how all of our old assumptions have been shattered. And what <laughs> comes back to the climate emergency is that we can't have any assumptions and we can't be focused on the perfection of yesterday. It doesn't matter if you're in a democracy or dictatorship. Wherever I look in the world, too much of politics is focused on imagining that tomorrow is going to be like yesterday. So if we can turn our attention to getting yesterday right, then tomorrow will be fine. This to me is the ultimate barrier head in the sand behavior. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well said. I, I was uh, listening to one of your um, interviews and you um, were, were talking about, um, I, I believe, and you correct me, I, uh, there was a, a place in India where um, because of the changes that they made, they actually saw a change in and some of the the, um, the natural disasters that were occurring. Um, does that does that ring a bell? Does that sound familiar to you? What I'm, I'm it discussing? Does. It does. I was talking about the place where I was born, which is a state called Odisha in eastern India. And what they did was uh, they knew that cyclonic storms, or what you call hurricanes, in the west are going to be more frequent. So they had programs in place that Florida and Louisiana didn't which is that uh, five days before you start an evacuation plan and they already knew where people would take shelter. All those shelter centers were not only hurricane proof, they were equipped with field kitchens, field hospitals, food supplies, and food stocks. So economically, one of the poorer jurisdictions in the world had a cyclone with 150 kilometer an hour winds for three days it's a region of 45 million people, and I think they had three deaths because they were able to move people to shelter in an organized and orderly way, provide for them, have civil emergencies and civil crews. That, to me, was a great example of adaptation and climate resilience. This is what climate resilience means. If you know that you're going to have 10 hurricanes a year, you better prepare your society in Florida or elsewhere with coordinated evacuation plans and coordinated coping plans instead of a politician getting saying, hey folks, there's a hurricane coming, get out. Are there buses? Right. Are there trains? Are there civil defense coordinators? Is there somebody to come and get me from my home and tell me where to go? No, just get out, time to evacuate. That's the, that's mm -hmm. the opposite of climate resilience. So when we're talking about climate resilience, it's saying get used to the new normal, and organize your society to deal with it. 
Gosh, you, you you bring back so many uh, 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 memories. I, I lived through Hurricane Andrew, and um, you know, you know, you, you, you give your example of uh, you said one of the one of the poorest areas in the world. You know, here I was in Miami, Florida, um, probably one of the richest areas in the world, and um, so many so many unfortunately passed away. So many lives were lost um, because there was there was not proper uh, preparation. Um, and we've seen it. And, 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 you know, it's like you go through a, a storm like Andrew, but that didn't change anything. We saw it again um, time and time again. Katrina is another uh, another large example. Um, and then even more many more times in uh, in Florida. Um, we've seen it even with uh, with winter storms in Texas. It's um, it, it, it is it is very frustrating. I, I think the more that I learn um, the more that I know that, uh, you know, leaders and, and politicians um, are ignoring the facts, ignoring the truths, ignoring the options that are given to them, and uh, many people are, are losing their lives. Well, you know, and I mean, the thing is that if you're going to build climate resilience, you need a kind of a society where the good of everyone has to be at least as important as your own good or your own well-being. I know that, you know, you, I'm all right and I don't care about my neighbor is not an attitude that's going to get you very far. You know, and in terms of looking at solutions, we actually have a solution at the Digital Economist, which we call the 6D lens, which helps you to identify what you need to do to build that kind of society that works for everyone and that converges the digital economy, the physical economy, the digital world and the physical world toward better human and planetary outcomes. Uh, would you allow me a couple of minutes just to go through the 60s, Sam? Oh, I would, I would absolutely love you to, please. Okay. So where we start, and let's talk about the national government level. We start with three Ds called development, dignity, and disarmament. Now, before people jump down my throat, disarmament doesn't mean defund the military or abolish the military. It means stop producing more arms. We have enough armament on this earth to kill the human population 30 times over, all of wow. us. Well, wow. let's stop producing more arms. What do we do with the money that we're doing on new generations of weapons or new space research, or that we're trying out right now in the proxy war in Russia with the poor Ukrainians caught in the middle, uh, where they're using advanced Western weapon systems against advanced Russian ones. We stop the arms production and we divert the military resources toward what we call civil defense. We have army engineers, we have army experts, we have experts in every field in the military. If you divert them to say, go to Florida, go to Louisiana, go to Mississippi and Alabama, and start building up the shore defenses. Start moving populations from floodplains into better areas. Use Army Corps of Engineers to build that hurricane resistance. This is how you move toward climate resilience, so disarmament. Then you get into the related concepts of development and dignity. Any development that destroys human dignity is not by nature sustainable. The very idea of sustainable development means it has to lead to the betterment of 
the common good and it has to make a real difference in the lives of ordinary people. So many of us live from paycheck to paycheck. So many of us live in the fear that if there's a health calamity, my family might not be able to survive. So many of us live with the fear that if I lose my job, I'm finished. So how do we get rid of that fear? How do we find that freedom from fear is the question that governments and societies have to ask. How do we make sure that everybody has the basic securities of life, food, shelter, and clothing? So that's the development dignity framework. So once we take this foundation of disarmament, development, dignity, then we move into what the digital world actually brings us. Digitalization, which technology is agnostic. Technology is neither a force for evil nor a force for good. As somebody put it, technology doesn't have a mind of its own yet, although AI might be getting us closer to it. <laughs> but how do we use technology for good? That's the real question of the digitalization D. Are we using it for the best? Then we come to decentralization. Decentralization is actually the opposite of dictatorship. Because in dictatorship, everything is controlled. Everything is centralized. Everything depends on a narrow power elite. Decentralization is really about liberty, freedom, and independence. But along with those rights comes the responsibility to look after one another. And then decentralization and digitalization take it to decarbonization. We have to reduce the carbon footprint to save the planet. All sorts of corporations, all sorts of governments are committed to getting to net zero by 2050, which means that you actually put less carbon into the atmosphere than you were before. Not just that, but that you're not adding any carbon. Even that might not keep us to what is now described as a scientific limit, which is planetary warming that's one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels but it'll give us a fighting chance to get there. So using these six Ds in a context of better human-centered and planetary outcomes is where I can actually say that Web3 is equal to 6D. Because if you take the 6D vision and the 6D lens and you tie it to what Web3 is trying to achieve, I think we have an incredibly powerful tool to transform the lot of humankind. Wow. I, I mean, I, I think you really do tie everything together so, so well. Um, and I can see why now in the video, in the beginning, uh, everyone was so excited when you, you pieced everything together. Um, how has the reception, I mean, we saw the, the clip in the video. How has the, the reception been as you've taken the 60, uh, you know, platform around the world to in, in front of the leaders? Well, you know, we're just starting that process, Sam, because we actually only came out with 6D at the end of January, and it has got some interest. And, uh, we, you know, we've done a couple of presentations on it, but the first big opportunity will be, uh, I'll be at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, I think. Let's talk about, about that. From now. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually going to be presenting a talk at the Female Quotient Lounge as a recovering patriarch and a lifelong feminist. 
I'm delighted to be part of the SQ Lounge conversation. Uh, but, you know, what I'll be talking about there is really how to get better societal outcomes and governance outcomes and environmental outcomes, what's called the ESG framework in the corporate world. And I'm going to introduce the 6D lens as a way of getting us there. And then just hear what people have to say. You've been asking what the reception is. The reception is that this concept keeps on evolving as we speak with people, as we listen to people, as we get feedback. I've already come to understand, for instance, that uh, the disarmament D when it comes to the private sector or to transnational organizations or to organizations that aren't governments is really about deployment and, and diversion of resources to the optimal use to achieve the other five Ds. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to some great conversations at Davos, looking forward to meeting some great people. And, you know, the Digital Economist is uh, just really honored and humbled to be able to be part of this transition that we need in order to have a future that works for everybody and leaves no one behind. No, I, I, think, I think that is, that is, that is incredible. And, um, and as I mentioned many times, one of the reasons why I'm so excited, because I, I do believe that when you combine, um, these six D's, uh, together, you really get a foundation that can have a positive impact, uh, on, on, on the world. Um, moving forward, I, I know that, uh, we, you've got a lot of things lined up right now. What is the best way, uh, for folks to, to, you know, A, you know, get your book, by the way. You know, Us is, is available to buy. Where can people go and, and, and pick that up? Uh, actually, Amazon has it as print for demand, print on demand. You can order it from Amazon.ca, which is the Canadian site. It's a bit harder to find on the American site, but persevere, and you will find it. Uh, that's the easiest way to get it. Or you can, if you just want to get a download of an e-copy, which has live hyperlinks in it, you can go to usthebook.us. Nice, nice, nice. And you'll be in Davos very shortly. Uh, very excited. Uh, it'll be my first trip out there as well. So I, I, I can't wait to see Switzerland and, and, uh, and enjoy all the beautiful scenery that I hear so much about. Um, but it's going to be a lot of great work to, a lot of great work to be done. Um, you know, uh, making an impact, spreading awareness to positive use of digitization and decarbonization is uh, very important. Um, and uh, I just want to say I'm so thankful um, and so fortunate to, uh, to have gotten to know you and to learn from you and, uh, and now to work with you. So thank you for swinging by the podcast. It's much appreciated. Sam, I have to say likewise, because you're my guru on everything digital. I'm learning from you every day. I'm only 66. I've got at least 30 years of learning ahead of me. So keep on teaching me and leading the way. Sam, it's such a pleasure to be your colleague and to work with you. And I know we're going to have some fun times in Davos, which we're not going to tell the podcast about. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. Make sure to follow the digitaleconomist.com. Go pick up a book, uh, us at Amazon on demand download on your Kindle. Uh, to everybody watching, Satya again, you hang on real tight. To the rest of you all, we will see you soon. Take care.